Hold up, y'all. Before y'all get too deep into the episode today, I want to let you know that you can stop right now and go to Black Executive on YouTube and watch this episode. Yes, that is right. You can actually watch me have this conversation today with my guests. We're going to try something new. This is going to be the first and only for season one of Black Executive, but coming back in January for season two, you're going to be able to watch all of our episodes and subscribe and then put a face to this voice that you've been following. I can't wait to meet you. Now, back to our regular scheduled biz talk. Welcome to Black Executive Podcast, where we share inspiration and actionable advice for Black creatives going pro. I'm your host, Jazz. With each episode, we'll chat with Black creatives thriving, all while building a network where the dreamers become doers and the aspiring become inspired. What's up, Black Executive fam? Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I'm your host. Well, not quite today. I'm Jazz. Uh, This is our 10th episode, and we're going to try something new today. One thing I've realized is that I've shared actionable advice and inspirational stories from Black creatives from all types of backgrounds. And we've heard some, some, some phenomenal stories, but I've never shared my own. So I don't want to bore y'all rambling on about my job for an hour. And I definitely want to have someone ask me challenging questions about my career and probe me to dig deeper about the impact of my work the same way that I do with my guests. So today we're going to flip the script. I've invited my creative collab compadre and a guest from earlier this season, Tay Ebison, to interview me. So I know that Tay is a captivating storyteller. He's inquisitive by nature. So I know he's going to push me out of my comfort zone and ask me the tough questions. So welcome back, Tay. And I'm handing over today's episode to you. Hey, hey, first off, thanks for having me back again, again. Of course. (laughs) Glad to be back and uh, flip the roles this time. Um, But yeah, so let's go ahead and jump right in without further ado. Um, so how's, have you been maintaining through this whole pandemic? Mm, uh, it has been a trial in adaptation. So, um, and again, first I was cool. Cause I was like, I'm introverted. I, I want to be at the house. And then after a while I was like, oh, I miss my coworkers. I miss seeing y'all's faces. And, you know, I talked to you about that. Um, then it got to the point where I was like, yeah, I'm ready to go back to work. And so now I'm at the point where I dream about being in office, like in my <laughs> sleep. <laughs> but I mean, I've I've found strategies that work for me, getting back into my regular routine instead of, you know, sleeping in, until 8.30 and then hopping on Zoom for my meetings for the day. I've been getting up at 6.37, working out, meditating, reading, writing, you know, and that, that gets me on track and keeps me focused, so... That's that's the best way to cope for me. Just I'm just adapting. Adap- just adapting. Yeah, that's yeah. that's key. And you mentioned the fact that you gotta like you found a new routine with everything that's been going on. So yeah, I, I definitely agree with that hundred percent. Um so yeah, looking at your your title, you're a user experience content strategist and content designer. Mm-hmm. Can you just break down what that is for people that don't know? Okay, so that is in the realm of software and tech. So um, basically with user experience, the way I like to explain it to people is like, you know, when you're on a site and you're trying to navigate something, you're trying to figure something out, the words on that site are helping you navigate it. The images that you see on the site are helping you navigate it, Um, especially when you think about 
smartphone interfaces, um, I don't want to say Apple Watch because it's heavily branded, but smart watches. Um, and you think about those those interfaces and how we have to learn how to navigate through those. There are humans that are behind that that are constantly thinking about the best way to communicate with you, um, thinking about the context. So, you know, what you're doing, why you're doing it, what your intentions are when you're doing it to create the best user experience for you. So that's the part of tech that is often overlooked. People think tech may always go to developers and coders, but you know, developers and coders do just that. They develop. Someone has to design the actual interface that people interact with. So that's where my job comes in. I spend a lot of time studying words, the way people respond to words, um, testing things like if I say sweepstakes instead of contest, which one are you more likely to click? And mm. Why are you clicking that? And how can I make you click it more? So uh, that's the easiest way to explain my job. Um, this is a lot of strategizing, heavy, heavy design uh, collaboration. Work with a lot of designers, hence you. Uh, mm-hmm. So I work very closely with designers. And um, I think that's the, the difference between my content role and other content roles that you commonly hear about in tech when they're like just writing the content. They're more like journalists, whereas we are literally designers we're content designers um uh, content strategy was birthed from design so actually designers had to write content and they got tired Mm -hmm. of it and said you know what why don't we get writers to do this and voila my profession came about so i spent a lot of time doing wireframes um you know a lot of research content frames the same things that ux designers do we do that when afforded the opportunity to so that was very well put. It makes and that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I hope that the audience can also grasp what you just said because that was uh, very clear. Uh, how did you How did you get into that? How did like How did you find out about it? What sparked your interest in uh, learning to write specifically for tech like that? Hmm. I would say I always knew I was going to be a writer. So I used to like try to sell a little spiral notebook books when I was like seven. <laughs> so like my dad used to read and write a lot. Um, I would see him like have these big textbooks of like, you know, all these different ideas, heavy, heavy Malcolm X. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but he would read and write a lot. My mom would read and write a lot. So I knew I wanted to write. So when I went to college, that's all I knew. I was like, I want to write, but I didn't want to be a starving artist. And I knew that I liked computers. My dad used to always say, you know how old folks just be like, you know, like, oh, my baby good with computers. <laughs> so my dad it's like was, every parent's bragging right. <laughs> my baby ex, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. my baby know how to set up a cell phone. My baby give me on the Facebook, you know. So <laughs> my dad was kind of always like, you know, my baby's good with computers. So when I went to school for writing, I initially looked into journalism programs and I realized that that's not the kind of work I wanted to do. I'm just now getting at a point in my life where I feel comfortable randomly talking to strangers just now. Um, So I didn't want to really be a journalist. Um, And I started looking into other writing programs and it just so happened that one of the only two tech writing programs in the country was in a college that was like five minutes from me. So I enrolled in that program. Still didn't know what I wanted to do. But as I got close to my undergrad degree, I started to realize I was really interested in the tech part of it. And then when I decided to go to grad school, I decided to concentrate on software documentation specifically. So I took classes. I think the class was called like New Media Literacy. And the whole class was 
pretty much studying uh, the way people interact on social media, um, the identities that they formed. We learned a lot about that communication and being able to um, place uh, your identity in different contexts and navigate. So I thought that was really interesting to look at it from the social media perspective. We studied memes a lot. So I learned about like the first meme, which was like all our base are belong to us, um, which mm. still is very like, just look <laughs> it up. It's weird, but it was like the first meme. So I actually had a class studying all of this and it was super cool. I had another class that allowed us to build a um, help system for um, on a, um, Adobe RoboHelp. RoboHelp, yeah. So we built it on that. And I was like, this is super cool. So literally, it was time to do my thesis. And all of my other classmates were doing, um, like, biographies. And they were just, like, studying, you know, valley speak and, um, you know, up talk and things like that, which is, like, when girls talk like this, like, they're always trying to, you know, ask a question at the end. Like, people, I had people who were writing um, their theses on that. And I was just like, I don't want to do none of that shit. Like, I, I didn't want to, I mean, I thought it was interesting, but not enough to spend like a year of my time heavily researching this. And so I realized what I wanted to do was create a tool to help other students understand complex theory and complex concepts because you learn so much theory in grad school. So I built, I say air quotes built because it was like on wordpress.org with HTML and CSS. <laughs> but I built a knowledge management database for students to use and instructors to use to, um, based off of a wiki format where they could collaboratively work on um, accumulating knowledge. And so I spent a lot of time researching Wikipedia, learned that it actually is more credible than the, the Encyclopedia Britannica. So I stand by that to this day. Fight me, hmm. don't at me. Um, <laughs> so um, I learned all of that and it actually ended up being a really effective tool. The school um, picked it up and uh, teachers actually started using it in their classes for like two years after I left. So it was like this legacy that I left. Um, but that, that really made me wanted to go into, I know it's like a long roundabout story, but that's what made me wanted to go into the software world even more. So straight out of college, I went into uh, software training slash documentation, did way more training than I wanted to do. But I had one project where I actually had to um, help design the mobile app of our in-house construction management software for the firm. So I had to do some UX design um, rescan some icons. I didn't have mm -hmm. any formal training. So mm -hmm. I was like, if I look back on it, like <laughs> that's, what it, <laughs> that's what I was doing, you know, but, but it was like getting my foot in the door. And I was like, you know, this is really cool. I really want to do this. And then I didn't do it ever again at their job. And so I spent like the rest of my jobs after that, like trying to chase that and, and do that as like tangential work to what I was doing. And um, eventually I said, forget it. Like, I don't want to be on the back end of user experience anymore. I want to be on the front end. I got tired of having to solve problems after the fact. I wanted to solve problems. I wanted to prevent problems from happening in the first place. So mm -hmm. I officially made the transition over. So that is how I got into like the tech writing software documentation UX field. Yeah, I mean, that was that was amazing. Uh, all the way from you uh, going to college and studying uh, English and then leaving your footprint and then going off to eventually find what you wanted to do in the long run. What was your thought process behind going to school to begin with? Is it, and is that a common path for, for most writers? Huh. I would say for me at that time, 
I grew up in a household where it was not, if you were going to college, it was what college are you going to? <laughs> mm. um, so there was, it was never an option for me to not consider college. I was a, uh, I am a first generation college student in my family. Um, in my entire family, I am one of the only ones with a master's degree and eventually I'll be the second one with a PhD. So wow, that was kind of Congrats. like, thank you. Thank you. PhD coming though. Loading, loading. Um, but it was just, it, I didn't have, it wasn't really an option to not go. So like when I graduated high school, I ended up being a teen mom. Not going to go into that. There's so many teen moms out there. Y'all know the story, but I ended up being um, a teen mom. And so I took a year off to like work and I was just like, um, just, just working. And I got to the point where I was working. I remember my shift was like 11 to three and my second shift was three to 11. And my mm. first job was letting me get off early to go to work in my second job. And I was doing that for months and I barely got to see my baby. She's with her dad a lot. And he was just soaking it up. He was just like, leave her with me, go to college, do your thing. Like, you know, I'm a raiser. And I was like, not my child. Like I, <laughs> I need to be around my child. Um, and so because of that, I ended up like saying, forget this. Like I can't do this. I need to go to college. So I was only, there was maybe like nine months between when I graduated high school and when I decided to go ahead and go to school. Um, and I started that being said, looking at the world of UX writing today and content strategy, I do not think you need to go to college to do it. Um, and that's from someone who I definitely value the value college education, clearly, um, as I intend to get my PhD, but I don't think that it's always necessary. I think sometimes um, it's just society telling us that we need to do it and that's the path, but it's not necessarily the most efficient path. There are courses you can take um, to transition there are other fields we can get experience. And you'll notice that a lot of content strategists and UX writers come from a lot of backgrounds. You will see people with biology degrees or wow. no degrees who are just like, I've been working in this industry for so long and I had to do this work and I was able to land this job. So don't think you have to go to college to do it. Yeah, I think that's very good to know for a lot of people um, that are interested in uh, taking a path similar to yours. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that that after school you you started uh, at a job and you were sort of doing what you wanted to do uh did you were you very a little self-conscious when you first started writing hmm i don't that's I, that's i don't i don't know if i was self-conscious because by the time i got my first job out of college i had my master's degrees and i had been teaching i taught i started teaching to actually get my master's degree. So it was paid for as long as I taught um, classes. Oh. So at this point, I had been teaching students, college freshmen and sophomores. And I, I, I think that was probably the time where I felt most nervous because here I am at this time, I was probably, when I started teaching, I was like 22. And mm. I'm looking at students That's who young. are also 22. Yes. <laughs> my <laughs> students were 22. I had one student who was like 70. I was like, dude, this is like my grandma. Like, I'm going to fail my grandma, you know? Mm. So it was, <laughs> I, I, that, I think that's where I was kind of nervous because I had to position myself as an expert and I had to position myself as an expert on writing. And writing is so subjective on certain things. I, I felt like it was hard to be to say like this is right and this is wrong, and I still don't really subscribe to that notion. I think writing is very descriptive and should not be prescriptive. So I think that kind of thrust me into it early on. So by the time 
by the time I actually had my first job, I was kind of just like, it is what it is. And very quickly, I realized that that expertise I had established as an instructor carried over very easily to my role in software. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned uh, writing being subjective. Um, could you go into what are some of like the biggest min- misconceptions about writing? Mm. I would definitely say that people think that it has to be prescriptive. That's the, that's number one pet peeve of mine. When I see these memes online and they're like, there and there really mess y'all up or we are weird, <laughs> y'all stupid. And I'm like, that elitist attitude is, is just that. <laughs> it's an elitist attitude. That's not what language is about. When you study language, uh, you realize language is always evolving and morphing. I'm a really big uh, fan of, um, this podcast, Lexicon Valley, and the guy, John McWhorter, I hope I'm not butchering his last name, but he's a very prominent uh, linguist, and he talks a lot about how language evolves just simply from our mouths and the way that we choose to enunciate or the lack thereof a particular word and how it can completely change the word over time, and we're actually in the middle of a shift that's happening now. Shout out to the great vowel shift writers know what I'm talking about <laughs> but like that happens over time um and because of that language is always morphing and evolving so one thing I just learned last week is that cyber is now considered a prefix so if you're saying cyber degrees as a website um it's not two words it's one which was interesting to me so but it's cool because you're always learning something new about language so I would say that's probably the main thing is that people try to use language and the use of it to um, create classes and categories. And we see that happen all the time with African-American vernacular slash Black English. We see this happening with um, multilingual speakers who are just using their native language and they have broken English. Um, ESL students, English second language students, they have certain patterns that they do because English actually doesn't make any sense. And Americans don't like to think about that, but it really doesn't make sense. Like other languages make more sense. So like Mm -hmm. non-native speakers really struggle with a lot of um, the things that come naturally to us. And so um, I would say that's probably the, those two things are are the primary things for me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Do you feel like people are nervous around you as a writer because they feel like (laughs) you'll correct them? (laughs) Yes. And I hate it. And I hate, and I know I've talked to you about this, a pet peeve of mine, because I'm just like, people will, like fumble over their words trying to sound proper and correct and I'm like dude just say what you're gonna say <laughs> like I say stuff I'm like I be going because I'm I'm black and I speak black English and it's valid so <laughs> you know I'm not going to I'm not going to police myself when I talk and I don't expect people to police themselves but I know sometimes people get really I've had supervisors who will be like really self-conscious about it and will ask me in meetings like is that the way you should say that. Did I say the right word? And I'm like, dude, I don't know. Google, I don't know. Say what, say what you feel, dog. Like, I got to Google this up just like you. Like, I, just speak. As long as I get the meaning, and that's, that's the thing that matters. If the meaning is not impacted, then, like, leave it alone. There was actually a good discussion I was in the other day with a, in a group of UX writers. We were talking about, do you correct your coworkers when they say something incorrect? Or when they say they use a term incorrectly, like a big pet peeve is tone of voice when it's re- really tone and voice um, oh. that you should be saying. Yeah, they're two separate things. Your voice is like how you hear me talking to you now. And the tone is when I'm talking like, 
oh, it's good when I'm like, nigga, what's good? Like I can say the same <laughs> thing, you know, and come off and come off different because of my tone. And so a lot of times people don't really um, get that. They don't they don't get that. And so it's a, a bit pet, a big pet peeve. But I feel like that's not their job to understand the difference between tone and voice is mine. So I'm not going to put that on my coworkers. I'm not going to correct you. So I know what you mean. That's all that matters. Yeah, that <laughs> that that I feel like that's huge with like any profession, um, especially as a writer. Um, you mentioned that you were teaching back in college to sort of fund your degree. Mm-hmm. Um, what other, I feel like knowing you, you've also mentioned that like you've done other things outside of like work and teaching. Like you mentioned that you've wrote books and things like that. So mm-hmm. what other endeavors have you uh, done as a writer? Let's see. I've done a lot of freelance work. So realized that the type of freelance work I was doing really quickly is not what I wanted to do. I would edit work for people, edit books. Um, I did a lot of resume writing. I've I've still done a few of those. I've done manuals, um, indexes, just like really not fun writing work. But it's like Mm. if, if you have to get the bills paid, you know, I had time where I was doing contract work and in between contracts, you know, if our contract ends early, you have to do what you do. So I would freelance. Um, I would say the more fun work that I've done uh, a few years ago, well, maybe like a little bit over a year ago, I got into Amazon uh, KDP publishing. So, and I will do an episode on that because I think Mm. that's a great hustle for people to pick up. But uh, basically you could just like design a book, upload it and Amazon will um, print on demand it for you to your customers. So I created some low content books specifically for little black and brown girls, because I feel like there's not enough content out there for them. I was little black and brown girl. I have little black and brown girls. So I want them to feel represented. And I kind of got tired of seeing books and things with girls that didn't look like them. It's just, it was just old. I didn't want them coloring pictures of girls that didn't look like them. Um, And I, I get a lot of crap from my family, but I'm very particular about having images of all black people in my house. Um, we do have some diverse images and things like that, um, that have multiple people, but you will never see like one sole image of like a white person in my house because I feel like my kids are bombarded with those images constantly. And at home, they need to be surrounded with people who look like them, like to affirm them, to affirm you are beautiful. How you look is normal. Your hair is supposed to be this way. You know, it's, it's, it's okay. Like you are not, um, going against the grain by being who you are, you, you are, you just are. So I don't, I never want them to feel like they're not represented in their own home. And so I feel like if I was going to make books and things like that, I needed to do something for my children. So that's been one of the primary things I've been working on. And I'm working on a full content book with lots of pretty pictures of little black and brown girls doing things that we do, like, you know, just anything. So, you know, you hear those things like, I was listening to a podcast and somebody was like, you know, I can't relate to Becky doing yoga and going hiking. I'm black. We don't do that. We are not a monolith. I like hiking and yoga and I'm also black Mm -hmm. and I like chai. That's cool. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, I want, I want to make sure that my daughters also feel that too. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of your, your daughters, how do you manage a work-life balance with everything that you do? Uh, It is a matter of, getting up early and going to bed late. (laughs) Mm. So I have to 
I have to make time for me to be a good Jasmine, as I like to, to put it. Like when I don't make time for me, I don't like that version of myself um, because I'm, I'm easily agitated. I'm not as patient with my kids or, you know, my partner. So I always want to make sure that I get up in the morning and make an hour and a half of time for me. And then I, I help my kids get situated. I take breaks throughout my workday since we're at home right now um, to make sure that I can help them get situated, especially with classes and things where I see patterns. You know, you just like any other parent, you observe your kids, you see patterns. I notice like, oh, my second grader really struggles with getting on this particular class or at two o'clock every day, I find her like playing with her dolls instead of looking at Zoom, <laughs> you know, because mm. she's tired. So, you know, I have to know, I know at two o'clock, I need to go check on my baby to make sure that she's engaged in class. So, which sucks, but it's, it's just the world we're, we're living in right now. So it, it, that, it's just a matter of that in the evenings, I have to make sure I have time for my partner, especially now that I'm, you know, podcasting and doing a lot of stuff in the evening. So I try to organize my schedule around when he's gaming, um, try to make sure that we have like a date night during the week so that he doesn't feel neglected. But I feel like that's a struggle of <laughs> all of us. Like, I'm sure you can relate. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And, the, and your partner is like, I need this time. And you're just like, I really need to get this done right now. I'm, mm-hmm. really, I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's that's pretty much been the balance, just trying to give everyone designated time throughout the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, like you said, I can, uh, I can attest to everything you just said, um, <laughs> being a busy creative myself. Um, but you mentioned that you uh, meditate earlier. How do you feel like mm-hmm. that affects or uh, plays a role into your creative process? Hmm. I am a very visual meditator. So I will, um, I know like there are different ways you can approach it. There are some days where um, I just feel like I need to escape, especially if there's a situation or a person that I'm dealing with that's causing me a lot of, um, I just say emotional weight, then I have to go to places where I can visually place that person away from me. Um, And that translates over into work as well. Sometimes, you know, things aren't working out at work or my brain is stuck on something. I can't think through a solution. So I have to meditate and go to a different place to put that somewhere else. Um, Sometimes I go the complete opposite way and I ground down completely and just focus on being where I am, listening to the sounds, um, being immersed in my environment. And I feel like that helps with my creativity as well because um, I just kind of go deeper into myself. And I feel like when I do that, I'm able to more easily flow through words when I'm thinking through these. And I think I'm a better collaborator also when I've had time to like place that creative energy elsewhere, which I think starting off early in my morning doing that gives me time to kind of play in that creative space with my mind. I've always had a very active imagination to the point that I will imagine entire lifetimes that never happened. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, that's dope. Uh, do you, what type, are you using like guided meditations or are you just sitting with your own thoughts and, and uh, doing it on your own? I usually do it on my own. I started off using guided meditation and I still do go back to it when I cannot clear my brain. I am a a huge overthinker. 
and it it will just like carry over into me sleeping at night. I would just literally think myself to sleep. I will <laughs> exhaust my brain. So um, guided helps when I'm having one of those days and I'm just like, I can't focus on anything. But some days I just need music. I turn on some Janae or I'll just listen to, um, I'm really big on, it's kind of weird. I love a good movie score. So Hans Zimmer is um, one for me. And he, he did like the score for Inception, also um, Interstellar. And I listen to a lot of that. So like you come in my meditation space and you hear like this movie music. You're like, what is going on? And I'm sitting here like Dr. Strange, you know? <laughs> it's so funny. I caught my, so my brother put me onto like movie scores mm-hmm. and he was listening to it one time. And we had a, we had a basketball game we were getting ready for. And he was in the room and I went in there to go ask him a question. And he was in there playing his movie music. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's sitting there trying to focus, get ready for the game. I'm like, uh, what are you bumping to right now? <laughs> <laughs> this is what you're using to get motivated. But, yeah. But yeah, after he put me on to like, he caught like, there's this, uh, I guess this genre called like epic music. Mm-hmm. It's like up tempo and yes. uh, like very energizing to like get you in the mood to do stuff. Once mm-hmm. he put me onto it, I was like, yo, this is, this actually works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I love it. I love it. It's, and I also love lo-fi. I listen to lo-fi a lot of times when I'm working during the day. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that sometimes like it's hard for you to focus and that you're having one of those days. So mm-hmm. how do you deal with writer's block and how do you stay motivated? Mm. I would think, I'll say this. I think writer's block almost shows like your maturity as a writer. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. say this because there's a show, I don't know, tw- is it the 20s? 20s is the show. Um, it's a real cool show. If you like Insecure to listeners, you'll like 20s. So 20s has a scene and um, there's this young writer trying to get into Hollywood and she has this mentor. Um, it's a very beautiful, very attractive black woman. And she was talking about having writer's block or whatever. And she was like, I don't have time to have writer's block. I got shit to do. Like, mm. and that's the way that I kind of deal with it. Because beforehand, when I was kind of like a student in college or whatnot, and writing was just so cathartic. And it was like, this is my craft. And I'm all like spacey, hippie. And it's like, I love words, <laughs> you know? And it was kind of like that. Then, yeah, I had time and space to have writer's block and kind of be stuck on an idea and, and ponder it and discuss it with my classmates and go through philosophy and theory. What would Nietzsche say? Like, I didn't, I don't have time for that now. <laughs> I don't have time for that. So it's like, if I have, if I have to write, then I have to write. And one of my really good friends just published um, a full length fiction book. Shout out to Rachel Hayes. Check out her book. Um, one of her characters is based on me. I just love her. Oh. Um, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so, but basically she told me that like one of her strategies, she was just like, I just have to block off two hours a day. It doesn't matter when or how I have to block two hours off and I'm going to write. I can write on paper. I can write on a computer, but I need to write during that time. So for when it's something I have to get done, it's literally setting a deadline and saying, you need to get this done, find time to do it. And that forces me to think through it because what you'll notice with writer's block, once you sit down, the most intimidating thing is getting to the computer or your pen or whatever, your paper and looking at it blank. That's the most difficult thing. Once Mm -hmm. you start writing, 
even though it feels bad at the time, like, oh, this is crap. Eventually you'll get into a flow and you'll find what you're looking for. The words will work. You'll go in and edit. You'll cut things out. You'll see patterns. You'll see other concepts that stick out, um, you know, the different direction you want to go with your work and it'll just flow. But if you never sit down and make the time to do it, it's not going to happen. The biggest hurdle to writer's block is sitting down and actually writing. You just have to write. Even if you think it's bad, just do it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, that that's huge. Um, you mentioned that uh, sometimes like you, you write it down on paper, sometimes like you yeah, at the computer. Um, what tools do you use primarily for writing and why? I know the writing community is going to yell at me, but I use Google Docs. <laughs> and um, I know Microsoft Word is almost like a cardinal sin right now because it's just so many writers have gotten away from it because of the spell check. Um, and the last thing you want to do when you're trying to ideate is have someone telling you you misspelled it. I know I misspelled it, dude. Like, I'm not worried about that. I'm just trying to get this idea out. So there's another one. I want to say it's, Hemingway no Scribner Scribner yeah Hemingway is a correction tool Scribner um and that's one that I've recently been put on and so I'm going to start doing some writing there but Google Docs is like my go-to because a lot of times um I write faster by typing than I can physically with my hands plus my handwriting is just chicken scratch like (laughs) it's a joke in my family I'm the writer who can't write because my handwriting is so bad like it's so bad um, so I can't even read my own writing sometimes when I, <laughs> write. so it's easier for me to like throw it in a Google doc. And then I have the app on my phone. So if I wake up in the middle of the night, I have a thought or early in the morning, I have a thought, I'll just open up the app, put it in my phone. And then later I can return to the document as a whole, um, on my computer screen and start to organize it and, and see patterns from there. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, chicken scratch. That's me all day long. I think <laughs> I've become the definition of chicken scratch. Trying to read what I write is like trying to decode a foreign language <laughs> written for someone <laughs> as a spy or something. But you've been working on that though, right? You've been I've trying been, different I've been strategies. I've been working on it. I've been trying different things to try to like write faster and to uh, like get my thoughts out clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned that as you're writing, that you don't like for people to like sort of check you when you're in that ideation phase because you're just mm-hmm. trying to get your ideas out. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like that is a good practice for, for aspiring writers to just like sit down and write without editing and then go back and, mm-hmm. and apply like the edits? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you try to edit as you go, you will break your flow. You will, that's when you become self-conscious as a writer. Um, you're like, and then a lot of times because, I say it's like this. When you write, writing is so, the rules of grammar are so unnatural, right? The way we speak, we do not speak how we write and vice versa. Mm. We speak in sentence fragments, um, utterances, a lot of, mm, uh, mm, you know, throughout the conversation because we're thinking and we're processing. It's like we're live, you know, just like if this interview is live, you're going to see me fumble versus if it's edited, it's going to be nice and cleaned cleaned up. So writing is like that. Um, if you focus on trying to get your thoughts on paper, then you'll get it down and you can move on and go back and check it later. If you try to edit, you get out of that natural flow of what you really want to say and you step out of your natural voice. So just literally 
as it's in your head, write it. I misspell words. I use things I know that like this is not correct at all. Um, I use word the wrong word choice. And that's another thing I had to not get caught up in. I'm really big on like, I want to make sure I use the exact word. Doesn't matter how many times I've read the definition, I'm gonna always Google a word. Period. Mm-hmm. If I if I question it, it could be dog. If I'm using it in this particular context and I don't know if that's correct, I'm still gonna Google it. So, you know. I'll get caught up in that and it will mess up my flow. So now I don't even do that. It's just like, just write. I can make a note to come back. I know I can go back and edit and catch it later. But yeah, just definitely write. Don't waste your time trying to edit and use services that don't try to edit you. Google Docs still does try to edit you. Grammarly, if you use that extension, which I do a lot because it's super helpful, but it will try to edit the crap out of you. And it's like, I just need to ideate right now. Yeah, that, I think that makes a lot of sense and will resonate uh, with a lot of people. You mm-hmm. mentioned that you uh, go to Google and look things up and that you just want to sit down and write. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know where you go for inspiration and how do you save that, imp- that inspiration? Let's see. I love Medium. Medium is my go-to. Um, I published a few articles on Medium, um, but Medium is my go-to because you have a range of writers. On Medium, you find scholarly writers who are very academic, research-based, and writers who are writing for different brands and representing a company. And then you have people who just woke up one day and was like, I'm just going to write on Medium. (laughs) And you can tell, but they all approach uh, content differently and the way that they speak. I really admire a lot of a Medium has, one of the publications is Zora on Medium, and they are like a Black-focused um, publication, and they have a lot of content that uses AAVE, and they're very um, colloquial in a lot of their language in a, in a way that's effective. Um, so I will check a lot of Medium articles. I also have certain people that I follow on social media who are very um, deep thinkers, and they challenge a lot of um, social norms, and they're provocative, and they say things that are that piss people off, like the whole unpopular opinion X. I love those people because I have a lot of unpopular opinions. So I've learned I keep most of them to myself so people don't hate my guts. But, <laughs> you know, um, but I will follow I will follow those people and I'll check their work. And that's really where I find a lot of inspiration. Um, when it comes to just writing for like work, I have sites that I'll go to uh, like emails, uh, reallygoodemails.com is one that I go to for work because they have really good emails and you can search them. So I use them for ideas a lot and I'm heavily immersed in research. So sometimes I will literally just go to Nielsen Norman and look at what the new research is that's come out or the Baymar Institute. Um, and you know, take that and apply that to my writing and, you know, that research will inform some of my decisions. Yeah, you, it's it's funny. You mentioned uh, unpopular opinions. Mm-hmm. Do you have any hot takes or unpopular opinions on writing? Um. Ooh. Ah, there's so many. I'm trying to think. <laughs> I will say. The first one, the most unpopular one, I feel like I get the most pushback on is I really feel like you should feel empowered to write to users in the language that they speak. And when I say that, 
other writers always go, yeah, yeah, we should do that. And then as soon as I write a sentence and it's grammatically incorrect to their eye Mm. or it's using language that they don't think is professional, then it's like, um, do we think that's going to resonate with our audience? And it's like, do you know who your audience is? Because that's who I wrote it for. You know, and I know the language that they're speaking because I did the research. I went to the forums. I saw their product reviews on your service and I know what language they're using. So that is, to me, is super important to do that because when you don't speak to language, to users in language that they understand, um, you don't reach them. And if you try to train them into a language that you want to speak, you um, stop them from being vulnerable and sharing their experiences or engaging with your product. So I'll probably say that's the most unpopular one. I'm a big advocate for just using the language that works for you as well. So the anti-code switch movement, working on being unapologetically, unapologetically, that's that word today. We got it today, Jess. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but myself in corporate spaces and just getting out of that habit of thinking that, you know, you have to code switch when you don't and we're not going to do it anymore. Reach, I'll retweet that all day long. <laughs> um, you mentioned, so I, I can definitely uh, agree with that first unpopular thing you mentioned about like um, writing content uh, based on like what the audience will understand. I remember mm-hmm. uh, working on a freelance project once and uh, it was um, for an audience that was primarily uh, a Spanish-speaking audience. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we first started the project, the direction from the uh, stakeholder I was working with was saying, yeah, uh, we're going to write it in English and just go to Google Translate and figure out what it says in Spanish. And I was like, mm, that doesn't, no, that's like super formal and it doesn't translate exactly one-to-one from English to Spanish. So mm-hmm. what we ended up doing was like hiring like a Spanish speaking writer who was able to like translate things in like an informal way that speaks to the audience in a way that they can understand. So definitely, definitely agree with what you said hundred mm-hmm. percent. Um, but, but yeah, it sounds like you're, um, very passionate about writing. You've already dropped a lot of gems. Uh, you mentioned some podcasts. Um, you've also mentioned that like books and stuff. So, can you drop a few books that you've read recently and then talk through some books that um, you're reading now? Um, recently, I, 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 okay, let me think. Two books that I recently read that really resonated with me and particularly challenged me. Um, think, which I cannot, Thick, that's the name of the book. Boom, Thick is the name of the book. Thick? And I cannot, Thick, T-H-I-C-K, like oh. thick. Baby, I'm thick in the Black community. She thick. Anyway, so, but that's how the author played on that language. Um, and um, even the visual, the, I believe the H in thick is like spread out wide. I love it. But it's written by a Black woman who um, is like balancing being an academic and trying to write for her community and the challenges that she's faced. So, of course, I can totally relate to that. That's like my life. Uh, so it doesn't matter how corporate I go. I'm always an academic at heart because I'm big on research. That's one of the books that I read where I really felt seen. Like a lot of times you read books and we consume media 
um, especially as, as black people and black women, that doesn't, it's like, it's kind of related to our experience, but it's not directly related to us. So that book to me was like, that book was written for me by me for someone who is going through the exact same thing that I'm going through. Another one is Eloquent Rage. I want to say the author is Brittany Cooper. Um, so I recently read that. And when I first read it, like I went through this roller coaster. The first half of it, I was like, okay, I'm with you, girl. Like, cause she's talking about basically channeling what is considered rage. She talks a lot about the angry black woman stereotype and mm-hmm. that how that trope is uh, perpetuated. And she talks a lot about just channel- channeling it and using it to do good work um, and move the community. But in the middle of the book, she kind of started getting into a little bit of respectability politics. She started getting into politics, period, which I just didn't think was a good place. I was like, nah, sis, I don't fool with that, sis. I ain't with you <laughs> on that. But I stuck with it. I try not to stop reading books just because I disagree, you know, so because I think it's important to be challenged. So I, I stuck with it. And in, in, in the end of the book, she kind of, she got me back. So that's one I'm going to go back and reread. Um, I'm currently reading, uh, I just, I, I have about four more chat, no, two more chapters in All About Love by Bell Hooks. It's an interesting book. That's another one that has challenged me. Um, crazy that I consider myself a womanist, but I have not read much Bell Hooks. So this is my first full read of her book, uh, one of her books. And I was, it talks about love, not just from a romantic stance, but she talks about the lack of love in American culture and how it plays into parenting, um, interactions with each other, um, just in some of the issues that plague our society, she feels like are based on a lack of love. So she really explores love in a lot of ways. And and she talks about being a woman and particularly a black woman having to speak about love when men who are so much uh, considered not emotional are usually the writers on these texts about love. Um, And so like, and she's like challenging that. Um, So I have a few more chapters of that. And I just started Pleasure Activism. Just started it. I'm excited about it. It's a very interesting book. Um, In the foreword, she already talks about how literally saying, I want you to orgasm in between each chapter. So this is wow. going to be an interesting journey. <laughs> but the, the book is about um, basically seeking pleasure in everything. Um, so of course she does talk about sexual pleasure, um, being on the queer spectrum, um, all types of relationships. She talks about being a black woman. She's actually biracial. Um, she talks about her identity in that at this point in history in time, which I very much understood and respected that. Um, and this idea that in a hundred years, people can talk about identifying as black the same way we talk about identifying as Negro now. You know, none of us would ever identify as Negro. You know, so um, really interesting concepts there. And um, I'm really interested in how she's going to explore this idea of finding pleasure in everything that you do and actively making pleasure in your life and being okay and loud with being accepting pleasure, which she feels like uh, America's capitalist culture tries to make so negative like you know talking about pleasure is taboo being happy can be considered taboo for certain things finding pleasure in being a black woman in a time in which we're so oppressed could be considered taboo um but you know we it shouldn't be so we'll we'll see how we'll see how it goes but within the first um few chapters so far she has my attention yeah that's dope you uh 
very uh, I like the books that you've been reading. What format do you read in? So like I, I know a lot. Of, I see the physical books behind you. I see the stack mm-hmm. back there. Are you a physical book reader, uh, primarily an audio book reader, or are you an ebook reader off of like a Kindle or an iPad or something? All of the above. These are for decor. <laughs> but um, I, I'm so much on the go. I do a lot of um, audible books because I just, I'm, like, I have to move around the house. Even though we're home, I'm still moving. So I'll do that. What I'll do a lot of times is listen while I'm driving or doing something around the house. Then I'll get either the physical book or the ebook and go back and read over ideas, highlight concepts that stood out to me. Um, make notes and things like that. So I do everything. What I feel like, I know that's another area where I, p- I feel like sometimes people can be elitist. Like, oh, you didn't actually read the book. You know, you're blah, blah, blah. Like, uh, th- really, I mean, yes, there are benefits that come from actually reading, uh, physically reading and seeing the words and, and hearing in your voice how, how you, you know, perceive that content. But also the knowledge is there regardless of how I consume it, right? So I'm really reading for the the knowledge on these things and these perspectives. And a lot of the audiobooks, I like to hear if the the author is the reader. I definitely want to hear how they are interpreting their work. And that's something you don't get when you're reading it yourself. You know, you're interpreting it yourself. But when they actually are reading it to you, you know how they intended things with their inflection and their tone. Yeah, um, I agree 100%. I'm one of those as well where I read in just about every format mm-hmm. there is. Physical books. As you can see with the books behind me, mm-hmm. uh, physical books, ebooks on like a Kindle, and then also doing audiobooks if I'm like busy and just want to try to multitask. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned earlier that you know uh, you're reading a book that made you feel seen as a as a black woman. How do you mm-hmm. think your representation and your work in content in content, <clears throat> excuse me, it impacts the black community? Hmm. I think the easy play is the low content books, right? Because they're literally, excuse me, they're literally books for black and brown children. So like, that's the easy play. Like, of course, I'm making something for them. Um, My dad, who was in a small town in Mississippi, recently showed one of the books to um, one of his neighbors who's older and she got emotional. And this woman is in like her 50s because she said we didn't have these types of things when I was a kid. And I, when I created it, I never would have thought that a 50-year-old woman would be impacted by something I made for my seven-year-old daughter. You know, um, so I think that that's an easy play to go with. I feel like that that it's like a very evident impact. Um, With my work at work in my full-time role, I feel like it's a matter of being that representation, right? I have to be the one in the conversation who says, is this the best language to use when we're looking at our demographic? Um, and being and having that language to authentically say these things. Um, one thing I was questioned on recently in a workshop at work was like, how do we speak to users in these languages, you know, without being inauthentic? And I said, you don't. You hire people who authentically and natively speak those languages. Mm-hmm. We need more diversity. We need more diverse writers. <laughs> we don't need you. Says I don't need you to appropriate my culture to write for me. I need you to hire someone who looks like me to write for me. <laughs> so um, that that kind of, I feel like that's needed. And someone has to be that voice to have those conversations. And so many times in my career, especially when you're early in your career, you're not in those rooms. You can't have those conversations. You're not in those 
senior leadership position. So um, now that I'm in a position where, you know, I, I still have allies, of course, and I think allies are super important. You know, we still live in a um, society where they're still the majority and we still have to um, have people who have our best interests and they can, you know, voice that in rooms when we're not there. So of course that's so important. But now when I am in these rooms, I'm always looking for ways to bring my people in. You know, I'm like, I'm in the conversation saying, why don't we have more black writers or just writers of color, period. Um, You know, it doesn't always have to be a a black person. We don't have any Hispanics. We don't have any um, Indians, but I, I feel like just being that representation and being that voice and being the ear, being the listener Anytime I'm in a position to be in a room and I know that they're talking about other black creatives in the space and I'm like, I'm a ping that black creative. I'm not going to tell them what was said. But I'm, you know, if I heard them talking about your time management skills, I'm a ping and be like, hey, so like, how long is it taking you on that project? Oh, mm-hmm. you need me to help you with something. I'm going to do things like that to nudge you because I know in these other rooms you're being spoken about and I want to do what I can to make sure that you're succeeding. And I feel like that's one of the biggest impacts. So just that representation, not only on these websites and being able to challenge people on their language choices. And even when I'm collabing with designers and challenging them on their image choices with not having enough diversity in images and illustrations. Um, but just being represented, um, representing when I can. Very well said. Very well said. Um, I feel like you've been given a lot of free game, a lot of free jewelry today. <laughs> What other advice would you have for aspiring Black professionals who are looking to become content strategists? Hmm. I would probably say the general, there are two ways, like there's general and specific. For like specifically to get into content strategy, get get into your research. Dive into your research, get on Nielsen Norman, get on Interaction Design, Find all the resources that designers are using and study those resources because you are not just a writer, you are a designer. Um, in the role that I'm in now, the the hiring, the person who hired me when I came in the door even said one of the reasons I was hired was because I had design background. Like, and as I said on your episode, I'm not like you. You cold. I'm not cold, <laughs> but I'm better than average, you know, um, compared to the other pers- other people out here. So having those adaptable skills. Uh, being able to show that like I do have a background in UX. I do understand the importance of advocating for the users and users needs um, and being genuine about that. Like, I feel like if you, if you really don't care to be a champion for people and their needs, you're not going to find joy in the work. Um, so you need to dive into yourself and figure out if that's work that you want to do that you find important. Um, on a general side, I would say definitely to take advantage of connections. I'm always trying to, connect with people and so in the workplace when you find people that you like you work really well with them link with them you don't have to love their personality but you work well with them so connect with them if you find people I really love their personality but we don't really work well together I have people like that too where I'm like that's my girl but I can't work with her Mm -hmm. you know connect with those people too and when you find someone who's both like I work well with them and I connect with their personality latch on to the person (laughs) Because it's it's so hard to find those good connections and you never know where people are going to go once they leave that company. You're not going to work at the company forever. Um, you don't know what they're going to do and you need to form those relationships. And I think you have to be very strategic 
about it and be genuine. I think if you're trying to just like form relationships to get something from someone, it's not going to get you very far. You know, you have to literally really be genuine and people will know, you know, I have people, I have tons of black writers that I don't even work with ever, but I literally looked in the database at work, found them and reached out and said, Hey, you want to hop on a zoom call? I never met you. And we just talk, we just talk. And now you know who I am. I know who you are. We may never work together, but we have this connection. Um, I think that's important, especially being a black creative. We need as many allies as possible. Their strength in numbers, as we know. And a lot of times when we speak on issues, when you're the only one speaking, it feels like um, it's easy for you to be attacked. You're like open. But when you have other people who feel the same way and can, you know, say, like, I second that idea. I'm also experiencing that. It's easier for you to make moves in the workplace. So form those connections, find your tribe and stick with those people. So in case you haven't noticed, you're part of my tribe, Tay. <laughs> Exposed. <laughs> Exposed. No, I think I think that was uh, genius uh, to to research best practices and to learn design. Uh, whether it's like visual design and UX design, I think that's mm-hmm. genius. And I feel like uh, I would definitely say the same thing. Um, and then also like networking and build, building like genuine relationships, not these fabricated yes. where you're using people as a tool. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, that that is um, very well said. What uh, So to, just to go ahead and wrap everything up, how can people find you and keep pace with your creative journey? Glad you asked. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you're experiencing it. <laughs> so <laughs> this is a part of my creative journey. You can find, of course, me anywhere you find Black Executive because it's my baby. If you're interested in my corporate work, you can find me um, at jazzwillwrite.com. And that will show you a portfolio of everything that I've been talking about on today's episode. Awesome. You mentioned Medium earlier as well. Mm-hmm. What is your Medium handle if people want to go and read some of the work you're publishing? Uh, I want to say it's Jazz Will. I've changed it a few times. Um, don't hold me. Th- I'm going to put it in the show notes, y'all. Don't hold me to that. <laughs> but I think I want to say that it's Jazz Will. Um, but yeah, I only have a few pieces on Medium and I will be transferring that content over to Black Executive so you won't have to look for it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, you did really good. You did really good. Y'all, I'm not going to lie. It feels a little awkward having to give five key takeaways on my very own episode. But nevertheless, for consistency, which is the key to all things UX writing, I am going to give you five key takeaways that I hope that you got from my episode. Number one. You can take several paths into the career that you want. So even though I talked about my more traditional career in obtaining my degrees, once I got my degrees, I decided I want to do something slightly different and I was able to pivot that. And I took a more non-traditional approach to that and kind of networked and hustled and self-taught my way into a new career. So you can change careers and you don't have to go the route that everyone else goes. College degrees are important, but they're becoming less, less, and less important every day. And if you're a regular listener, you know we have guests on the show a lot who either didn't go to college or decided that they didn't want to go anymore, including my host today, Tay. Number two, 
the importance of the evolution of language and what that means for code switching in the workplace, what that means for uh, respectability politics and all of that BS. You know, I, I really hope to highlight that in my conversation and, and help you all feel more comfortable speaking in your natural tongue at work and advocating for the acceptance of that. Number three, meditation and creation go hand in hand. So Tay really probed me to talk about my spiritual side a little bit, which I don't usually go to go into too much during this podcast, but I spent a lot of time meditating and I feel like it directly relates to my creation process. And, you know, even with my revision and how I talked about editing, navigating through writer's block, all of that can be very emotional work, knowing when to have the emotion in your work and knowing when you need to pull that emotion out and just get it done and, you know, trudge through it is important. Number four, understanding the relationship between your work and the text that you read, the media you consume. So I spoke a lot specifically about my relationships with the different books I read and how they help me feel seen as a Black creative and Black professional in a workspace. So a lot of my books are really varied. The books that I spoke about today were more so about my overall career journey rather than specifically my skill as in a UX writer, a content strategist, but they still directly relate to how I perceive myself in the workplace and how I carry myself as an entrepreneur slash side hustler as well. So even if you're not a book reader, whatever medium you consume your content in and those voices that you hear, those people, those authors, those speakers, they have a relationship to you and how you function and, and how you perceive yourself in a professional setting. And number five, being the voice in the room for others. So that goes on multiple planes. So I talked about being the voice in the room for my users slash customers. And if you have a business, or if you work for a business, you should always really pay attention to the importance of speaking to users in their language and being able to best connect with them the message that you're trying to get across, whether it be to buy a product or service or to subscribe or what to donate, whatever it is. And also for your colleagues, it is very, very important for me, you know, if it's in my day-to-day -day job or my side hustles or my podcast. I'm always trying to connect with people. I literally built this entire podcast to deeply connect myself more with creatives and black creatives specifically, but and I wanted to really dive into those connections. I feel like I knew a lot of black creatives, but I didn't know enough about their personal journeys. We didn't get to have those deep conversations. And so black executive is a is the result of that. So I hope that you got that as well, that it is very important to form deep, impactful connections. Not only can they shape your career, your business, they can shape your entire life. So that's it. Those are my five key takeaways today. Y'all can let me know what your five key takeaways for were for my episode today. If there's something I didn't talk about that you want to hear more about or something I did talk about and you're like, I really wanted more than 30 seconds on that. Let me know. Email me jazz at blackzecutive.com. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at blackzecutive as well. And you can always go to blackzecutive.com to leave feedback directly. I am looking forward to hearing from you. Make sure you visit the site. We are currently having a Black Friday sale, 15% off of all Black Executive gear. Gift something to a Black creative or get something for yourself and rep it. Donate it to someone who needs some inspiration. Let them know they're a powerful, powerful Black creator. Until next time, keep aspiring to inspire. Oh, and by the way, 
My VP looks like me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Black Executive. If you enjoyed listening in on this convo, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Executive. Have something to add to the conversation? Visit blackexecutive.com to leave feedback and your thoughts could be featured on a later episode. While you're there, pick up your exclusive Black Executive gear and rep the culture. And spread the knowledge. If you know a Black creator trying to go pro, a corporate mogul looking to advance, or a cousin that's always hustling but never gets an idea going, drop them a link to the show. Until next time, keep aspiring to inspire. Thank you.